Welcome back to our Wednesday night Bible study on the signs of salvation. We are looking in Acts chapter 2. This is uh, the historical account of what is known as Pentecost, uh, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit onto the church there in Jerusalem. Uh, And as a result of that, Uh, Peter takes an opportunity to preach to the crowds uh, concerning Christ who has just been crucified, resurrected, glorified, and ascended into heaven. And the people respond to his sermon. And so what we're looking at is their response uh, and what occurs in the lives of these people who hear the message of Christ and believe and are saved. And so what we're looking at are the signs of salvation. Uh, And so the first one that we looked at was in verse 37 of chapter 2, where it tells us, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? And then Peter said to them, repent. And so we looked at the first sign of salvation being a conviction of sin and a repentance from sin. And then our second sign was uh, to follow uh, Christ in obedience. And so we particularly looked at the idea of baptism. Peter had instructed them to be baptized. And it says uh, that those who received the word with gladness were baptized in verse 41. And then our third sign that we looked at was a love for the word of God. And we saw that in verse 42 where it says, and they, that is the the church in general, specifically these several thousand people, 3,000 people that were saved, uh, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. And so we talked about uh, how believers would have a love for the word. And then last week, uh, we looked at the idea of fellowship, of koinonia, uh, that they continued steadfastly, not only in the apostles' doctrine, but also in fellowship uh, with one another and with Christ. And so we looked at that idea of koinonia and everything that was involved in that. And so this evening, we'll continue in verse 42, and it says, "...they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship." In the breaking of bread, which we covered briefly on the same uh, evening that we talked about baptism and obedience to Christ. But then it says, and in prayers. So they continued steadfastly in prayers. Uh, And so the the mark or the sign of salvation that we're looking at tonight is a, a discovery of genuine prayer. Now I say genuine prayer because other people other than just Christians pray. Uh, Most of these people, we can presume, were Jews or uh, those who had converted to Judaism. They were in Jerusalem for the festival. Uh, So these are people who already prayed. Uh, They engaged in the act of prayer as part of their religious practice as Jews. And there are other religions throughout the world that also practice this discipline of prayer. So the question then is, is what is different about Christian prayer. How, how can prayer be a sign of salvation if false religions, other religions in the world, also engage in prayer? Well, Peter Masters, the, the pastor there at the London Tabernacle, he says this about prayer as a sign of salvation. He says, true converts instinctively take their problems to the Lord in prayer. And when they do this, we know that they have really found him. Now, he's got a point Uh, that there is something instinctual about 
once we're saved, we, we go to the Lord in prayer with uh, the things that we're concerned about. And he says we can see that somebody is doing that. That's a sign that they have actually found Christ. But as I said, other religions pray. So uh, what are we to look for to know that this is genuine Christian prayer? Well, uh, even non-religious persons, uh, when they're converted, uh, should discover uh, this genuine Christian prayer, right? Somebody who has no religious background at all and gets saved uh, would begin to have a desire and an interest in prayer. They would instinctively, as he says, go to the Lord uh, with their problems uh, and, and prayer. They would have very little idea what to do, how to pray. Uh, how to say it. They would do, it would be an instinctual response that they would do that, but they would be lacking uh, in instruction. But a convert from another religion, from Judaism, or, or if they converted from Mormonism or whatever, uh, they would have some ideas about prayer that they would bring with them. Uh, and so they would engage in prayer, but their prayer life would need to change in some specific ways if they are uh, to actually engage in Christian prayer. And one of the specific ways that it would change, I would say probably the most important way it would change, um, well, there are several important ways it would change, but one of the distinctive things about Christian prayer is found in Galatians chapter 4, verse 6, where, where Paul says to the, the Gentile believers in the churches of Galatia, he says, and because you are sons, so remember this whole idea of adoption. Because of our faith in Christ, our union with Christ, we've been adopted by God as his children. And so Paul says, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. So one of the distinctive marks of Christian prayer is the intimacy that we have with God as our Father. Other religions don't have that. The Muslims pray to Allah. They do not pray to him as to a father. They don't pray Abba, Father. Uh, even Roman Catholics, they may say a prayer. They may say the Our Father prayer, right? But uh, they view him as so far distant from them, so uh, removed from them, that they pray through Mary and the other saints to intercede for them rather than going directly to God uh, with this sort of childlike uh, intimacy and innocence that a Christian should have. And this is a work of the Holy Spirit, Paul says here in Galatians 4, 6, that it is the Spirit that comes into our hearts that enables us to cry out to God in prayer uh, in this childlike way with this sense of trust and intimacy. And only those who are truly regenerate and have the Spirit of God uh, can approach God in that manner uh, with this sense of warmth and wonder uh, at the idea of prayer, the privilege of prayer, that we can go before the God of the universe as our Father. And so new believers should evidence a certain excitement for prayer. Uh, just the idea of, you know, like how a kid just loves to talk to their daddy and tell him things and ask him for help on things. And, and so this Christian should have a desire to pray to their heavenly Father. John Calvin says this, he says, the presence of the celestial favor does already shine forth in the desire for prayer. So he says, if somebody has a desire to pray, that is an evidence 
that they have the favor of God uh, upon them. And so uh, that's one thing that we might mark as a distinction between Christian prayer and the prayers of other religions is that for Christians, prayer is a privilege rather than a penance. You think in Roman Catholicism, for instance, if they go into confession and, the, and confess certain sins and the priest will give them penance and he might tell them to pray, you know, five Our Fathers and eight Hail Marys or whatever. Prayer for them is a form of penance rather than a privilege to come before God. And for other religions, pagan religions that pray to their gods, whatever they are, a lot of times their prayers have to do with trying to appease the deity's wrath. But for Christians, God's wrath has already been appeased toward us in the the blood of Christ. And so our prayers are not for that purpose. They're different. Notice also that here in in Acts 2, the context uh, of the prayers to which they commit themselves and continue steadfastly. There's 3,000 people that have been added to the church at this point, uh, and they continue steadfastly in prayers. Now, if we look back at chapter 1 of Acts, chapter 1, verse 14, uh, we read that the disciples at the beginning, before the Spirit is poured out, uh, that it says they all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brother. So all these disciples are gathered together in Jerusalem and they are praying together. It's corporate prayer. That's, that's part of the context. And then Pentecost happens. Peter preaches his sermon. All these people get saved and they continue steadfastly in prayer. And the context is together, right? They continued in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, communion together, and in prayer. And if we look down at chapter 3, verse 1, we see that it says, Now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And so it appears that uh, the disciples in Jerusalem were still observing uh, set times when they gathered together in prayer. They went up to the temple at the hour of prayer. And we just sang that hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer. But this hour of prayer would have been a group of them praying together in the temple courtyards at a set time. Uh, And so Calvin comments uh, on this text here in, in Acts 2 and says, it is certain that he speaks of public prayer. So one of the marks of Christian prayer is that for a new convert is they would desire to be with God's people, not only for fellowship, uh, but for prayer as well. Uh, So new believers uh, would desire to be with other Christians and with the church. But the problem is when someone comes to Christ, whether they come out of another religion and have uh, old habits of prayer, that they need to unlearn, or whether they come from a non-religious background and have no habits of prayer, they need to learn how to pray. We don't, it, it is instinctual to some extent, but at the same time, uh, we need to learn. All of us need to learn how to pray uh, better. And so throughout history, the church has developed means to teach new believers how to pray. Uh, and they have used catechisms to teach about prayer. Uh, they have developed methods of teaching new believers how to pray. And so we're going to discuss some of that uh, this evening. How, how do we learn how to pray so that our prayers don't become uh, overly repetitious or uh, become stagnant and lifeless? 
Like we feel like we're just saying the same thing over and over again, and so we kind of lose interest in it. Uh, and so how do we learn how to pray? So uh, I'm going to primarily use one paragraph out of our confession uh, this evening, but then we'll look at a couple other things at the end. But uh, in chapter 22 of our confession, which is of religious worship and the Sabbath day, uh, paragraph 3 and 4 address the subject of prayer. And so here's paragraph 3, which is primarily what I want to look at. It says, prayer with thanksgiving, being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. But that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to His will, with understanding, reverence, humility, fervency, faith, love, and perseverance, and when with others in a known tongue. So we're going to just briefly look at each of the phrases in that paragraph. And the first thing to note is it says that prayer with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship. And so we need to recognize that prayer is a form of worship. Uh, It's an act of worship that we perform. He calls it, the the confession calls it natural worship. It's kind of that instinctive thing that that Peter Masters was talking about. We know there is a God, and we know that we should pray to him. So even unsaved people have this, and that's why uh, all these pagan religions have some practice of prayer. It's part of our worship. Uh, But because it is part of our worship as Christians, our prayer, therefore, is regulated by Scripture. Uh, the first paragraph of that chapter uh, defines for us what is commonly known as the regulative principle of worship, uh, which means that Scripture regulates how we worship God. And so for Christians, we should learn about prayer from Scripture because God has given it to us to instruct us in how to worship Him. It also tells us that prayer, uh, with thanksgiving being one part of natural worship, is by God required of all men. That means prayer, since it is part of our worship, is to be offered to God alone. And paragraph 2 of that chapter of the Confession makes that point that all worship is to be offered to God alone. Uh, So, therefore, if a Catholic wants to tell you that their prayers to Mary are not worship, they're just wrong. They don't understand what prayer is if they think they're praying to Mary and that's not worship. The confession says prayer is an act of worship. So if you're praying to someone, you are worshiping that person. So our prayer should be offered to God alone. Uh, So that is one thing that makes our prayer distinctively Christian. Uh, And it's not just Roman Catholicism. Pagan religions throughout time and throughout the world have engaged in prayer to their ancestors asking the spirits of their ancestors or uh, important people in their religious faith for help. Um, Pagan religions worship nature, uh, pray to Mother Earth or to the, you know, the nebulous kind of spirit of nature or whatever, but we offer prayer to God alone. The confession says that it is required of all men and, you know, Romans chapter 1, we know because of creation, we we instinctively know there is a creator, and so we're without excuse. We know we should worship the creator and that prayer is part of that. The problem for non-Christians, for unregenerate men, is that their prayers are not acceptable to God. 
They are required to pray. It's part of their duty as creatures. And yet their prayers are not acceptable because Scripture regulates how we are to pray. And the confession goes on to say that uh, that it may be accepted, it is to be made in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, according to his will. Uh, So those three things there are important, that we are to pray um, in the name of the Son by the help of the Spirit and according to his will. On John chapter 14, uh, Jesus tells us to ask in his name so that the Father would grant those petitions for us. In paragraph 2 of this chapter in the Confession, it speaks of Christ as the mediator as the one who mediates our worship to God. Uh, And so what this means to pray in Christ's name simply is that we're not coming to God in our name. We're not coming and going, Lord, hear me because I'm me. We're going, Lord, hear me because I know your son. I'm praying to you with Christ's name with his authority. It's almost as if you you think about uh, the friend that you have that has some insider deal with some buddy of his that owns a business, and he says, yeah, go down there and tell him I sent you, and he'll give you the deal, right? It's kind of something like that. You're going to God the Father, and you're praying, and you're saying, your son sent me. Uh, I'm praying in his name, not my own. Um, And so we pray to God the Father through Christ as our mediator. Uh, So this is another instance where we can see that Roman Catholicism, when they consider Mary to be a co-mediatrix with Christ, Uh, is completely uh, unscriptural at that point. There is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. The second aspect of prayer is that it is to be done by the help of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We need the Spirit to help us pray. In Romans chapter 8, uh, I'll read two verses for you, verse 15 and then verse 26. In verse 15, Paul says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. So it's very similar to what he told the church in Galatia. And then in verse 26, uh, he says this. He says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. So first of all, we know that the Spirit stirs up our hearts to pray to God as our Father in this intimate way, uh, and, and also that the Spirit uh, intercedes for us. He, he, he translates our prayers when we can't even put them into words. We don't even know how to pray for a situation. We're burdened for something, but we don't even know how to pray for it. He prays for us. He intercedes for us. And um, T.W. Hunt, in his book on prayer, says that the Spirit helps with depth of meaning to the divine mind far beyond where human language can venture. So sometimes, and he uses the analogy of learning a different language and that sometimes there are ways of thinking in a foreign language that are different than how we think in English. And he talks about when he first went as a missionary to Japan and began to learn the Japanese language and realized that he could think thoughts in Japanese that he couldn't think in English because the language was so different. And he says that's what the Spirit does for us. We do our best to vocalize our prayers to God, but the Spirit knows what we are praying in our, in our heart, in our soul. And so the Spirit prays it 
better than we can pray it so that uh, he improves our prayers or perfects our prayers. And this is really for our benefit, right? We, it, it, Paul is telling us this so that we can know that God understands our prayers even when we fumble them, even when we, when we can't express them exactly right. We don't know what to pray. And that this is a huge relief. When we want to pray for things, we don't have to worry that I have to get the wording just right or God's not going to answer my prayer because he won't know what I mean or I didn't ask for the right thing. No, he knows. He knows what we're asking. Uh, he knows better than we know how to ask even. Uh, and so the Spirit helps us pray in that regard. The confession goes on to say that we're to offer prayers according to his will. And so our prayers are to be in accord with God's will. Where do we find God's will? In the scripture, right? So prayer follows doctrine. They devoted themselves steadfastly to the apostles' doctrine and to prayer. But the more we learn of God's word, the more we will know of his will, and therefore the more we will be able to pray according to his will. Now God is gracious. He is patient with us. We are like children in his sight. And when we first get saved, we don't know his will according to his word that well. We pray the best we can, and God is patient and gracious to us. But he does expect us uh, to continue to add to our faith knowledge and to mature in our understanding of Scripture and in our practice of prayer. Now, the confession goes on then to give us seven elements that, that should be part of our prayer. Uh, so it gave us, the, it said that, that in order to be accepted, our prayer needed to be in the name of the Son, by the help of the Spirit, and according to His will. There's a semicolon, so this is kind of a new thought. It says, with, and then it gives us seven things, with understanding, with reverence, with humility, with fervency, with faith, with love, and with perseverance. And so, uh, you know, it's one of these lists that's kind of Pauline in, in that way. Paul likes to give us lists like this. Um, so just quickly to run down these things. To pray with understanding means that uh, even though sometimes we don't know exactly how to say something, it still means that prayer is uh, to be done with our mind or to be thoughtful about it, right? This isn't some mystical, nebulous thing. We're to be thoughtful about how we pray. Uh, we're to, to pray with our mind. In, in, in First Chronicles, uh, sorry, 1 Corinthians 14, where Paul's addressing the spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. He says, if you pray in an unknown tongue, and by the way, he means another language, not some tongue of angels or whatever. He actually talks about all the languages on the earth and that they all have meaning. But if you're praying in one that nobody else in the group understands, that you don't even understand because you have this gift, then your mind is not being edified. And so he said he would much rather pray with his mind than to pray unintelligibly. So we're to pray with understanding. Um, secondly, we are to pray with reverence. This is worship. It's serious. Uh, we're coming before God. We should not be flippant about it. This is an, uh, a reference to the fear of the Lord that should be part of our prayers. Uh, James Renahan uh, has this to say, he says that reverence in prayer is a recognition of God's unfathomable greatness, causing the one praying to express himself in a manner befitting the sovereign, majestic Lord to whom he prays. 
So as we approach God, we approach him with a certain awe and fear because he is the Lord God Almighty. And that leads into the next item, which is humility. We are sinners coming before this Almighty God. And so uh, we come boldly before the throne of grace because of the sacrifice of Christ. Uh, And we pray in his name, but we are to do so with a sense of humility. Uh, Joel Beakey had this to say on this subject. He said, prayer more than anything else denies self, relinquishes control, confesses need, leans on God, goes outside ourselves, and cries out for help. That's what we're doing when we pray, and so there obviously should be a sense of humility there in our prayers. Uh, The next thing is that it should be done with fervency. Uh, We should pray with fervency. Uh, This is earnestness, heartfeltness to our prayers, not vain repetition, not empty words. Uh, This is to really mean it when you pray. And if we think about uh, that passage in James 5, verse 16, that we're all familiar with, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. That word fervent there is the Greek word energio. It means energy or activity, uh, energetic. It's not lifeless. Our prayers shouldn't be lifeless. They should be energetic. They should be fervent. Next, it says that we are to pray with faith. Um, Well, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 tells us that we have to believe that he is and that he hears and that he can and will answer. Uh, We have to pray with faith. Uh, Romans 14 23 tells us that whatever is not from faith is sin. So think about that. If we pray and we don't pray with faith, believing that God is and that he hears and that he answers prayer, that means we can pray sinful prayers if we pray faithless prayers. That's a sobering thought. Even our prayers could be sinful. Uh, That should bring us to our knees in humility even more when we approach the throne of God in prayer. Look at this quote I've got here. I'm trying to, okay, Edward Lay, who was a a Puritan in the mid-1600s, said, he that prays without a promise talking about the promises of God in Scripture. He that prays without a promise denies his own request because you don't have anything to believe in then as you're praying. He says to pray in faith is to go as far as the promise goes. And so he encourages believers to look for the promises of God in Scripture and to pray those because we can trust them. We can pray those promises with faith. Sixth, we're told to pray with love. We're to pray with love in our hearts for God. Uh, You can't hate God and pray to him in faith, right? If you pray in faith, that means you have to love the God that you are praying to. Uh, A prayer is a self-denial. So selfish prayers would not be prayers that are prayed uh, in love. We have to come to God as our supreme good, not just as the Santa Claus in the sky that we get the things we really want from, right? We have to love him more than the requests that we're asking him for. We also have to love others in our prayers. Jesus explicitly tells us to pray for those who persecute us, to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So as we pray for others, we need to pray for them in love as well. And then finally, it says that we are to pray with perseverance, Acts 2, they continued steadfastly 
in prayer. They, they persevered in prayer. Uh, they continued to pray uh, over and over again, continuing to ask God uh, for things like the persistent widow in the parable that Jesus tells. And then finally, just, uh, as just a footnote on this last line of the paragraph, it says, and when with others in a known tongue. This is not uh, the confession saying that when you're by yourself, you can pray in tongues as we understand them today. That's not what they were talking about. Uh, we need to understand the context here was that the Latin, the Roman church at the time was performing most of its services in Latin. And the common people did not understand Latin. So the prayers that were being offered in the church services were unintelligible to the congregation because they were done in an unknown language. So this line in the confession is requiring that our public prayers be done in the vernacular of the people. So uh, if you were uh, in Geneva, Switzerland with Calvin and trained for the ministry and sent into France as a missionary because it was a Roman Catholic country, but you had come from a part of Switzerland where your native language was German, when you went into France as a missionary and began to pray with people, you were to pray in French, not German. You had to pray in a language that was comprehensible to them. The very first uh, commentary that was ever written on the Westminster Confession of Faith, written in 1650 by a guy named David Dixon in Glasgow. Uh, his commentary, I love the name of his commentary, it's called Truth's Victory Over Error. That's how he titled his commentary on the confession. He said this concerning that line. He said, The papists err who maintain that it is not needful that public prayers be in a known tongue, but that it is oftentimes expedient that prayers be performed in a tongue unknown to the common people. He says they're in error when they perform the prayer, saying it's better that we do them in Latin because that sounds better and, and God will like them better if they're in Latin. He says, no, they need to be in the language that the people understand. So, just, I know we're running slightly over time, but I want to quickly go over this because I found this extremely helpful. The idea of teaching people how to pray. Martin Luther, uh, as he began to shepherd and pastor those who were coming to faith and coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, who had no understanding of Christian prayer because of how they had been brought up with the prayers of the, of the church being done in Latin and stuff. He begins to try and teach people how to pray. And, and so he begins to develop catechisms that answer questions about prayer and stuff like that. But in 1535, so this is, uh, what, 18 years after he nailed his 95 theses to the door, his barber asks him, teach me how to pray. I, I don't know how to pray. My prayers are boring they're repetitious. I'm, I, I, don't, I need help learning how to pray. And so Martin Luther wrote a small uh, booklet for him called A Simple Way to Pray. And it ended up getting published because it was so helpful for other people. Now in the booklet, he recommends uh, three resources, the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed. But what he is telling us to do here could really be done with any passage of Scripture. It's very helpful. What he does is he says... he. He takes each of these things, say the, the Lord's Prayer or the Ten Commandments, he takes one of the commandments and, and he meditates on that commandment. And the first thing he does with it is looks for what instruction is to be found there. What is God 
commanding me to do. And then he prays that God would help him to understand that command. Then he prays a prayer of thanksgiving. What has God promised here? And, and it's interesting to see how he does that, even working through the Ten Commandments. You know, thou shall not kill. Well, what does that mean? Lord, help me to understand what that means. And then he prays a prayer of thanksgiving that God cares about human life, that human life is valuable. It's made in the image of God. As so he turns this into a prayer of thanksgiving. And then thirdly, uh, he prays a prayer of confession, how he has failed to keep this particular commandment or failed to live up to this particular line in the Lord's Prayer, how he has been ungrateful for the thing he just prayed thanks for, uh, in, in this regard. And then lastly, he prays a prayer of intercession for himself and for others regarding this thing that he's praying about. Uh, it's an extremely helpful uh, little simple four steps to pray uh, about any topic, uh, any verse of the Bible practically you could use as a platform to pray to God simply by looking for the instruction God is giving, thanking God for the promises, confessing our sin, and then praying intercession for ourselves and others. So, very simple way to pray that Luther taught to his barber and many, many other people down through the years. Uh, and if anybody is more interested in that, I have that as a PDF and would be happy to email it to you if you want to read through it because he gives examples of how to do that through the Lord's Prayer, the Ten Commandments, and the Apostles' Creed line by line. Uh, but let's close tonight in a word of prayer.